Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Europa United's Eurochat series of podcasts. Our podcasts are presented in cooperation with the Communicating Europe initiative. The CEI was established in 1995 to raise awareness about the European Union and to improve the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues. You can find out more about the CEI by visiting our website at europaunited.eu or by going to the Department of Foreign Affairs website at dfa.ie. I'm Stella Bass of Europa United and my guest today is Irish Minister of State for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Minister, thank you very much for joining us You're today on your chat. Now, obviously, uh, you are super busy at the moment. You're caught up in the, the Brexit storm, as we all are, um, and certainly something that Ireland never asked to be dragged into. And um, I suppose the cooperation and trust that ex- that the EU kind of fosters between members and that the Good Friday Agreement um, brings between Ireland and the UK are certainly being stretched to the limit. And when this is all finally resolved, be that bre- no Brexit, deal Brexit or some kind of deal, do you think that the UK's diplomatic rep- relationship with Ireland, as well as with other EU countries, will be tainted in the long term? Or how do you see that new relationship as working out? Well, I suppose you've hit the nail on the head in saying how will Brexit end up because obviously we're, we're over three years now on and with less than 22, well, exactly 22 days until uh, the current Brexit deadline, we still don't know whether it will be a deal, a no deal, whether we'll have an, a possible further extension. Uh, and I think that adds to the uncertainty, but also the complexities in terms of relationships and how they have been evolving and developing and, and indeed changing over the past three years. From our point of view, and I suppose I can only speak on behalf of our Ireland, but I think in the same way, uh, I, I know from speaking to a lot of my European colleagues, you know, we want a relationship with the UK. We want a close relationship with the UK, not just any kind of a relationship. And that's from our point of view, I suppose, based on the fact that we have such a long and indeed complex and sometimes not very good relationship. But it's one I think that has evolved. And I think in particular in the past 10 or 15 years, uh, be it through the visit of the Queen, be it through, I think, increased political engagement, but also since the Good Friday Agreement and since the establishment of peace, not just on our island, but obviously we know it's built beyond um, our shores as well. I think we've seen that relationship grow and it's gotten only stronger. So the fact that we're going through this, um, it would be you know, wrong of me to say it hasn't put strain on certain relationships. Mm-hmm. I think it has, but I think it's something we can get through if we can get beyond what's happening now. And I think we want a deal because we want to be able to continue that relationship, but as also as close as possible for sure. As yeah. close as possible, yeah. but also as you've outlined at the beginning, it's a vote that impacts us in a very negative way if it's not dealt with correctly. And it's a vote we didn't ask for and something we don't agree with, but we, we do very much respect it. And I think f- from a, a European point of view, I mean, the UK has been and is still one of the largest member states and a very important member state and has contributed for 46 years to so much of what we now know is the European Union, our legislation, uh, you know, our rules and regulations, but rules and regulations that are there to help improve our life and to, to make sure that we sustain peace that we've had for so many years. So I think, you know, I suppose it's a long-winded way of saying I hope that our relationship can not just stay strong, but that we can continue to improve us. There are challenges at the moment, and I think in the event of a no deal, it will make that much more difficult. Um, And so for all of the reasons that we need a deal, um, that's just one of them. Yeah, and I suppose let's see how it it is going forward. It'll be, I suppose, however, however they resolve it in the UK will, I suppose, impact 
on how what the relationship's going forward. But well, if we have a no deal, it will be because the UK yeah. decide that they want a no yeah. deal. Um, there are uh, ways in which we can address concerns around the border, around the peace process, around our own economy, yeah. and obviously ensuring that the next stage of Brexit. And you know, you have to stress this idea that getting Brexit done on the thirty-first of October means it's over and done with. If we have a no deal, it's really it's, only the beginning of it, isn't it's it? It's only getting yeah. started, yeah. and even yeah. if we have a deal, then you have a whole uh, next stage where we're trying to talk about a future relationship and a transition period. Um, in the event of a no deal, that becomes much more difficult. So, you know, we have a long process ahead, irrespective of yeah. what happens by the thirty-first of October. But from our point of view, the best way to make sure we still have a close relationship is by agreeing a deal. A deal. We have one on the table, which we still think is the best deal that's there. But obviously, if there are other proposals that make and fulfil the same commitments in the deal we currently have, then then we're looking at that. We can go with Of course, I mean, the whole Brexit issue came because of of the the sort of perceived dissatisfaction in Britain with um, with the EU. And um, the European Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, she she said recently um, she made a pledge to tackle the the image of the so-called EU elitism. And indeed, uh, it has been said that the EU doesn't do enough uh, PR to promote its own work and the role and purpose and, I suppose, struggles to fight against this kind of right-wing sort of accusation of, of, of elitism and so on. With all the good work that the EU does, is that kind of frustrating for you that this, this sort of um, story is kind of... Um, put out about the EU and how do you think the, the how how best do you think the EU should tackle uh, I suppose an image issue in terms of being able to promote the good work that it does against the backdrop of the, the right-wing issues that are that are coming up do you know I think and, and I think Emily O'Reilly is a fantastic ambassador not just for our country but for the EU and she spoke at an event that we hosted last year as part of our Future of Europe Citizens Dialogues that we held for over a year and a half throughout the country and she made a very important point I think that normal people and, and I say I suppose normal your everyday person doesn't go about their daily lives thinking about Europe and how it can have a positive influence on yes. their life yet so much of what comes from Europe actually has a positive influence yeah. on our life so how do we get that message into people's homes yeah. um, and it's something I think that needs to be done on a regular basis so often when you have a crisis it puts a spotlight whether it's an EU crisis or at home or anywhere else it puts a spotlight mm. on the institution and it often highlights the negative elements of it and you know I'd be the first to say the EU isn't perfect but it's certainly the best mechanism that we have to deal with so many of the challenges but also you work together I think you can improve your living standards you can improve opportunities quality of life and protect um, peace not just across the EU but obviously have an impact further afield so I think what we need to try and do is a, if you, if you have a crisis and you're putting a spotlight on a, on a, a particular uh, industry or an institution, you need to use that opportunity to highlight the positives of it. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do throughout Europe. So when Brexit happened, I suppose the first question that many leaders asked was, well, why has this happened? And how can we make sure that it doesn't happen elsewhere? So they met at a summit in Bratislava the following September. And instead of being disheartened and I suppose things starting to fall apart, I think there was a renewed sense that we need to reach out to citizens, we need to make sure that we are listening to the concerns that they have, but that we are engaging not just in times of crisis, 
but all the time. And so what happened and what followed after that was a series of engagements across every single member state, obviously some at varying different levels and, mm-hmm. and in various different ways. But from our point of view and, and myself as minister, we took it upon us to try and travel around the country. So from Donegal to Galway down to Cork, we were in Meath, Dublin. We engaged with civic society, community organisations. We spent a lot of time travelling to our universities and then with our schools to talk to people yes. about Europe. And I suppose to try and understand what people's views were, um, where their concerns were, but what kind of a direction they wanted Europe to go in. And for me, I think it was a very rewarding um, piece of work because, A, I suppose what I felt and what's since been very clearly, I think, uh, portrayed in most recent surveys that we've undertaken is that Irish people actually have a very positive outlook of Europe. Yes. Um, while people don't necessarily understand the intricacies of some of what goes on and often suggestions were made to us where it's already happening and that's maybe a failure for us as individual governments and departments explaining what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were very positively disposed towards Europe and certainly don't want us to leave. Um, in fact, I suppose the best way to deal with things they feel is by trying to change it from the inside out where you do have a yes. problem. Um, and then the most recent survey that we've had from European Movement Ireland reflected that, I think, because it showed 93% of people support Ireland's membership of the EU, 97% which of our young people. Which is as good a validation as you're going to get. Which is yeah. as good a validation. And I yeah. think, I suppose it's based on, A, the fact that over half of our population were not born um, when we joined the e- what was then the EEC, now mm-hmm. the EU. So myself and many others have never known a world that doesn't involve the European yes. Union. I'm Irish, but I'm also European. Yes. And I think that's something that we're very proud of. Mm-hmm. But also, I think as a country and as a relatively new country, we've seen how our economy and how the way that we live our lives has evolved because of our membership. Now, I'm very much aware that that's not the case in other countries and Mm -hmm. something that does worry me is when I travel to other countries that it's very clear there is a a, an undertone and a a a voice that is getting stronger that is trying to not just um I suppose fight against the EU but actually dismantle it um and I think that's something we need to work on and need to make sure that when we're doing our individual conversations within member states, that we're then following through at a at a higher level, that our commissioners are on the ground engaging with people, mm-hmm. that our parliament is on the ground engaging with people, that the council is working based on what people have said they want. So this whole process is ongoing at the moment, and, and I hope it highlights to people that it's important that their views matter and that it's not some undemocratic institution that's operating that has no connection with people. But I suppose it is great that that Ireland does have such a positive viewpoint and I suppose on the other side of things um, if Brexit has done anything it has certainly raised the profile of Ireland um, in Europe and across the world and um, is there a plan now by the the Irish government to uh, to capitalise on our newfound fame (laughs) and (laughs) likeability? Absolutely, I mean I I will say one thing I'm over two years now as Minister for European Affairs or Minister of State for European Affairs and I probably because of the time frame and because we were year into Brexit negotiations met with and got to know my colleagues maybe much quicker than I would have if this was not going on so I've been able to build relationships and even as ministers have changed because we're in such regular contact Mm -hmm. with each other um, it's helped us to build relationships but also my travelling to meet them they're coming to Ireland to travel to the border to understand our issues and concerns has helped us to build relationships further which then you know, stems into tourism, spends into trade deals, business, and and it goes beyond. But I think what we've also done now, which is something that the Department of Foreign Affairs was working on, but 
accelerated on the basis of Brexit. Uh, we launched what's called Global Ireland 2025, and it's essentially a new global strategy, so it's not just at a European level, but at an international level where our target by 2025 is to have doubled our global footprint. Great. And what it means in our European cities and capitals and beyond that you know, increasing the number of people we have on the ground, making sure that we have all bodies. So whether it's Vulture Ireland Board BIA, whether it's our embassies working together in one house called an Ireland house, but it's also opening new embassies. It's looking at where we don't have a presence and how we can stretch beyond what we currently have. And I do think Brexit, you know, there's very few silver linings. If there is one, it's forced us to look further afield. It's forced us to maybe move away from our closest neighbour, which we don't want to do. And but spread our wings a little bit. Spread yeah. our wings yeah. a little bit, yeah. because if, unfortunately, there is quite a potential for a no deal, mm -hmm. if that happens, then we will, in many instances, and particularly in terms of trade, in terms of agriculture and in certain industries, um, they will not be our closest partner and it will have an adverse impact. We won't impact. be left, I suppose, uh, with, with nothing to, to show for because we will have established new, new I think so, and right? I think this yeah. Has, yeah. has allowed us to do that. But as I've said, I think it's it's allowed us to have conversations with colleagues on a more regular basis yeah. than we would have before. Which is, which is great. And of course, Brexit is, of course, your key responsibility at the moment. I suppose apart from that, what would be the, the political or social area that you would find that is closest to your heart um, so getting away from the Brexit sort of uh, debate in, in my role as Minister of Euro State for European Affairs no I think in as, as a politician or someone who's in the, in the public eye or just, just an area that's that is close to your Which, heart. You know, I, I suppose there's a lot of things that I work on. I think what I enjoy the most and what I really like doing is engaging with young people. Uh -huh. So whether it's on Europe and politics in general, whether it's travelling to schools, be it primary, uh, secondary or indeed universities, um, it's something that I really enjoy because I think now more than ever younger people are getting more involved in activism, in community, in politics. Of course, um, yeah. And now more than ever younger people have a voice and aren't afraid to use it That's and I true. think it's great. Yes, yes. So whether we're talking about mental health, which in, in my previous role as Minister for Mental Health, the first thing we looked at was establishing a task force on youth mental health and how can we, uh, I suppose, progress the services but listen to young people and hear what it is they have to say yeah. and what it is they want. So I'm a firm believer in anything that I'm doing, asking young people and reaching out to them to see what their views are because nine times out of ten they usually get it pretty right. That's so for sure. it's something, you know, as I said, whether it's my European hat or whether it's in the constituency focusing on issues like mental health or... Uh, you know, uh, the the day-to-day -day runnings of, yes. of a, a constituency. Um, and my engagement with young people is, is probably one of the things that I love the most. And on that, would you have any advice for any young person thinking about going into a career in politics? Do it, um, <laughs> really, is, is the one thing I'd say. Yeah. It's it, it can be daunting, the idea that obviously, you know, you're dealing with very complex issues and you're dealing yeah. with people's lives. And, and But, I mean, for me, I love meeting new people. I love dealing with you know, and trying to help them overcome certain mm -hmm. challenges that they have. But I think it creates so many opportunities. And I think you have, as a young person, a voice, as I've said, I don't think young people are afraid to use it mm -hmm. and to understand that that voice can actually bring about change. You don't need to change the world. And, and if you want to do that, then absolutely step by change step. Change your part of the world, I, I guess. I think is, you can yeah. get it. Yeah. You can get there. But, you know, if it's just even something small that you want to be a part of, uh, or even if you don't want to be involved in politics, I think I've seen more and more young people getting involved just in activism and, and working within their community. Uh, and I think that's a really positive 
step to take and and often that's what leads into politics because so many of my colleagues that are involved in politics started off campaigning for something looking for a playground for their children that they didn't have in their area and you know young people realize they could get things done by just on a local basis and then just 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 work that absolutely so i think that applies to to everybody and young people as well and just in terms of say um just kind of women in politics um do you see differences in how i suppose different generations of men regard female co- colleagues or does that happen at all or do you do you think that maybe women do politics differently to men or is that a myth or is that uh, is I, it a personality trait I think is we possibly it? do but you know on that same basis you could say well one man might approach his job in a different way th- to yeah. another man you yeah. know from a personal yeah. point of view and, and I can only speak in a personal point of view in the capacity that I've been a, a, a TD in Minster now for six and a half years I've spoken to colleagues who have been here maybe longer and, and I do think that it was much more difficult for them uh, you know even 10 years ago mm-hmm. let alone 20 or 30 years ago where you had very few women involved things are changing and obviously we're seeing much more women involved in politics I think the introduction of gender quotas while not everybody agrees with them and, and I suppose I have my own views I think they're a necessary implementation or a necessary um, structure at the moment to try and increase the participation of women and we've already seen it work the the, the change in a I think two elections since it was introduced uh, is huge but we're still not at 50 50 and I think when you have a population that 52 percent are female it should certainly reflect it that. should reflect yeah, that yeah. and it doesn't at the moment but um you know and again personally I've never felt and I always say this, and it was something I was asked quite a lot when I was first elected, I never feel like I'm treated differently because I'm a woman. I don't feel male colleagues treat me differently. Mm-hmm. I think, if anything, because I was young, people maybe looked at me and thought, you don't have the experience and the knowledge, and that was maybe a negative, but, you know... Certainly not on gender, which not, is good to hear. Not on gender, yeah. and, you know, I've never felt discriminated against. I've never felt that my male colleagues have treated me in a way that they shouldn't, to be yeah. honest. I, I think I have very good colleagues yeah. and, and very respectful colleagues, um, but I, I understand as well that's not necessarily the case and I do think that we have a lot of work to do to get to the point where there is you know even in terms of the pay gap uh, in terms of women on boards in terms of women in significant and senior positions there's still a lot of progress but the fact that we have a minister with responsibility for equality and progressing uh, the role of women in our society I think is a really shows shows that we're going in the the right direction I think it is and and again some people don't and would object to the fact that it's a man in that role. But I think if men are not supporting women, then we're never going to get there. And I don't think it should ever be women overtaking men. I think the goal is always that we have a 50-50, you know, approach to everything that we do. So that's, you know, I I think we're moving in the right direction, but we we still have work to do. Well, I think everybody would agree, uh, Minister, that you're doing a great job uh, promoting Ireland. Thank you very much for joining us today on your chat. And uh, please go to our website at europaunited.eu. Once again, thank you so much, Minister. Thank you.